So last week, we saw that in the nation of Persia, or the empire of Persia, the letter had gone out to where the Jews are going to be annihilated, that they all go into this period of deep mourning because they are going to be annihilated. God's people are going to be destroyed. Um, Mordecai comes up to the king's gate and, and sackcloth and ashes and uh, seems to be maybe even embarrassing Esther a little bit because he is, is acting this way. And Esther seems to be kind of blind to why Mordecai is acting like this. So she sends her eunuch. Mordecai tells the eunuch. Eunuch uh, transfers the message back to Esther. And so Esther uh, basically throws her hands up in the air and says, there's nothing I can do, you know. Uh, the king, he's made the decision. Uh, I'm going to be put to death if I come before the king if he doesn't summon me. And he hasn't, he hasn't summoned me for 30 days, so it's been 30 days since I've talked to them, even, even seen him. And so, uh, you know, what am I going to do? And then Mordecai presses upon Esther and then gives her uh, what I, I said is really kind of the hinge of the book, one of the very inspiring statement of the Old Testament when he, when he asks her, uh, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so this does kind of serve its intended purpose. Esther is inspired and she says, okay, go gather all the Jews in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, no eating or drinking for three days. And I'm going to fast as well. I'm going to go see the king. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai goes back, does everything Esther tells him to do. And that's where we left off. So in our reading today, we're going to observe Esther finally taking hold of her responsibilities as a member of God's covenant community. She's on her way to potentially lose her life. If she perishes, she perishes. Maybe Xerxes will show her mercy as she approaches the throne. We're going to see more wisdom emerge from Esther in her deliberate preparations to expose Haman's plot. And we will see Haman become enraged again by another slight from Mordecai. And then, at the advice of his wife and friends, have gallows made for Mordecai's immediate execution. But before we dive into the Word of God, let's remind ourselves of the through line that we've got in the series of this book, The Providence of God. The Jews are still headed for destruction, and with their destruction comes the destruction of the Davidic line from which the Messiah must come. So, let's read on and see how God's providence, paired with Esther's action, work together to save God's people. Esther chapter 5. Read the whole chapter. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. 
Then Esther said, My wish and my request is, If thou found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come to the king to, to the feast that she had prepared. And tomorrow I'm also invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So after fasting and kind of somewhat made the argument last week, presumably praying for three days. We aren't given that explicitly, but we are did kind of see that maybe there was some sort of repentance and, and prayer accompanied with the fasting. Maybe. Esther approaches the king while he's sitting on the throne. She hasn't merely made herself presentable for this occasion. She has, in fact, put on her royal robes for her uninvited audience with the king. And so uh, the author here is actually making a, a bit of a connection back to that inspiring verse, verse 14 from chapter 4, that word there that we have translated kingdom, and the word in, uh, ver- in chapter 5 in verse 1 where it says her, her royal, she placed on her royal robes, she put on her royal robes. Uh, those two words in the Hebrew are actually very close. Um, Not exactly the same word, but it conveys the same idea that Esther has come to the kingdom for such a time as this, and she has embraced it and put on her royal robes for the occasion. She is now part of the kingdom of Persia, but she's also part of the kingdom of the Jews. We'll get to that a little bit later. She's put on her royal robes for her uninvited audience with the king. So here is another contrast that we kind of need to grasp here. Remember back in chapter 1, Queen Vashti, Vashti was summoned during this massive party and this big patriotic event to go to war with Greece. She was summoned to appear before the king, and she was specifically summoned to appear in her royal crown, which she refused, and then she was banished for. Esther puts on her royal robes for merely stepping into the king's presence in what, by all accounts that we've given in the text, was just kind of just some ordinary day, basically. So Queen Vashti, we've got this patriotic event. She's supposed to come in her royal crown. She refuses. She's banished. We have an ordinary day with the king relaxing on his throne or doing whatever kingly things he's doing. And Esther puts on her royal garb, her royal robes, just to approach him like this. So we've got a contrast between Esther and Vashti right here. And then the threat of death passes when the king extends his golden scepter, thus signaling to the axe-wielding bodyguard not to kill Esther. We've got some, uh, some actual 
uh, pictorial evidence, uh, some sort of painting or something else, where this was a, a tradition carried over from the Medes before they merged with the Persians. Uh, talked about it a bit last week where you had the seven closest advisors and everyone else was killed immediately. Well, we've got actually a, an ancient picture of this with one of the, the Median kings sitting on his throne and he's at the entrance of the throne room. There's two, act, uh, two bodyguards sitting there with these giant axes. So the king doesn't extend the golden scepter off with their heads immediately. But Xerxes does extend the golden scepter. Bodyguard does not kill Esther. Esther touches the tip of the scepter, signifying that she is indeed gracious for the mercy that is being bestowed upon her. She then goes on to invite the king and Haman to a feast that she has prepared, to which they both very excitedly agree. Xerxes, while drinking wine, we're explicitly told, which is another allusion back to chapter 1, with all the, the wine drinking and the feasting going on there, he asks Esther why she has summoned them to this feast, offering her up to half of my kingdom, which actually is just more of a turn of phrase and not a, a literal offer. Um, we see that in the New Testament as well. Esther then, using this somewhat of a delay tactic, invites both the king and Haman to a subsequent feast on the next day, where then she will present her request. The suspense is heightened. It's heightened for the reader, the original readers, for the present-day readers. And then its suspense is also heightened for the king and for Haman. What is Esther going to request? She's making us another feast. Must be something big. Plus, in another striking uh, coincidence of God's providence, Haman still has to have some time to build his own gallows. So then Haman leaves in an obviously ecstatic mood. He's very happy. He leaves joyful. It even says in verse 9, went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Both the king and the queen love him. He's getting invited to private parties with only them. Then he gets slighted by Mordecai again. He goes home, recounts, whines to his wife and his friends how blessed he is. He's rich. He has many sons. Both the king and the queen love him. He is second in command in the most powerful empire in the world, but because one man, one man, is refusing to show him respect, his life is miserable. What an incredibly foolish display of pride we see coming from Haman. He has all of this, but he is not satisfied while this one person is still around. One person. Dwelling on the negative here seems to be a vast understatement. So, Haman, in all of his misery, is talking to his wife and his friends. His wife, Zeresh, gives him some advice that would make Jezebel very proud. Like King Ahab, King Ahab, in the end of First Kings, he's sulking because he doesn't have the one thing that he really wants. He has all of this, all of the things, but he wants Naboth's vineyard, this vineyard that is next door to his palace. And so Haman is sulking because he doesn't have the one thing that he wants right now, even though he has all this other stuff. He doesn't have the respect that's owed to him from this one man. But Zeresh's advice is exactly the same as Jezebel's. Just kill the guy. Problem solved. Haman then pursues the murder of Mordecai because in another irony given at the close of chapter 1, so at the end of chapter 1, the very last verse, remember we've got this edict because Vashti has slighted the king and she's going to inspire all the women to take control of their households. We have this edict that is given throughout all of Persia in the last verse of chapter 1, 
It says he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. So here's the irony here. Haman is supposed to, according to this royal law, be the master of his own household. He's the one that's supposed to, to rule. But his, his wife is the one that tells him he needs to go and kill Haman. I mean, he needs to go and kill Mordecai. So uh, in this certain sense, he is he's not being the master of the household. The, the wife is. So we have this irony here. But... This idea does please Haman. And so he has these gallows made, these gallows that are 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet tall, 75 feet high gallows, which is, I think there's a pine tree right over here that's about 75 feet tall, maybe, maybe a little bit shorter than that, actually. Huge. The, from the, the floor to the, the top of the ceiling in our sanctuary in there is probably 30, 35 feet, so over twice as tall as that, just to hang one guy on these are huge gallows. This was meant to be a display. We don't slight Haman. You know? um, and so this was, these gallows were, um, they were either something to be hanged on or they were more like something to be impaled upon. It could have been either one of these things. Different. Um, the Persians seemed to like to impale people more than, than hang them. Regardless, this was either gallows or a stake built 75 feet high to show the world that we don't slight Haman. Haman is, should be honored, should be bowed to whenever he demands it. And so, sticking on Haman for just a bit, Haman seems to be a very extreme example of the corrosiveness of pride. He has all of this. He's rich. He has lots of sons, which was something, an idea considered a great blessing in the Near East. Both the king and the queen love him. He is second in command, but his pride cannot let go of the fact that this one person does not show him the honor that he, quote-unquote, deserves. Sounds a lot like politicians and other cultural leaders right now. But it has been said that all sins are rooted in pride, and indeed, Haman's pride leads him to break at least four of the Ten Commandments in this situation. I ran through these pretty quick in my head, and I was like, well, that one, that one, that one, that one. Yeah, it seems like he's at least, the least here, breaking the do not murder, do not steal, because he was going to steal from the Jews, right, after he killed them all. Do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And he's bearing false witness because he said there's these people out there that refuse to, to honor the commands of the king, when really it just seemed to be Mordecai that was refusing to honor the commands of the king. So he's at least breaking four of the Ten Commandments in his pride because of his pride right now, probably more. Truly, pride does come before fall, and God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's pretty much all we're going to say about Haman for today, because I think it's more fruitful for us to focus on Esther and her spiritual growth. We tend to kind of focus on the, the villains here and like, good, we're not like that guy. We're not like that guy. But I think it might be more fruitful for us as believers to focus on Esther. More on that in a minute. But first, here's a, an interesting connection. At the beginning of the chapter, we are given the information that Esther approached the king on the third day after the initiation of the fast. It says there, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. There is actually a theological premise from Jewish rabbis that, quote, Israel is never left in dire distress more than three days. They get this from a few accounts. 
In Genesis 22, after God has told Abraham to offer up Isaac, Abraham goes out and he cuts the wood himself. He saddles up his donkeys. He he takes a few of his servants with him to travel to the place that God tells him. And then in um, chapter 22, verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Likewise, later on in Genesis, Jacob gets a three-day head start from the pursuit of Laban after Laban has realized that Jacob has, has gone and quote-unquote stolen all of the, his daughters and sheep and things. Uh, Jacob gets a three-day head start on Laban. And then the Jonah situation, you all know about that. And all this leads the rabbis in a, a midrash, which is kind of like this commentary, this Jewish rabbinic commentary that has like, uh, gathered over centuries. And so they've got this, this midrash that says, the dead will come to life only after three days, which they in turn also get from Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, which says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. And the irony seems to be lost on these Jewish rabbis, right? We, uh, they, don't, they can't see what we see. Um, this is true. We are not left in dire distress more than three days. The apostles weren't. The disciples of Jesus weren't. And we aren't either. These rabbis are intentionally blinding themselves to what's obvious to us. We see what Paul sees in 1 Corinthians 15 when he actually alludes back to Hosea when he says in 15 verse 4 that he, talking about Christ, was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance, in accordance with the scriptures. And the scripture Paul seems to be referring to here is, a, is Hosea 6 2. He, was ro- he rose on the third day. We recognize that, like the Jews of Persia, our deliverance was too delivered on the third day. Praise the Lord for this. And even though we, we might kind of be taken aback and might repulse at the idea of making Xerxes to, to Christ comparisons, just hear me out for just a little bit. I think the, the situation can be a bit illustrative. On the third day, in the throne room, Esther is granted life instead of death. The golden scepter foreshadows the deliverance of her people, which would not have happened without an audience before the king. Jesus is a merciful king. Obviously, he is a merciful king to us, to everyone in this room. But he is also a righteous judge. In a blatantly messianic psalm, I'm going to turn over there, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. This describes how our Lord will judge. Psalm 2, I'll read the whole psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 
for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so to quote Karen Jobes again, who I've quoted a few times, she says, On the third day, the Persian king, whose word was irrevocable law, extends the golden scepter to Esther, lest she die for coming into his presence unsummoned. Esther approaches the king and completes this gracious gesture by touching the tip of the scepter. Her safety in his presence is thereby guaranteed. The scene pictures a gracious act of a king who holds life and death power. Had God not extended the cross of Jesus Christ to the world, all would die in his presence. We would be consumed by his wrath. On the third day, after the final judgment transpired on the cross, Jesus arose to imperishable life, guaranteeing safety to enter into God's presence to all who reach out in faith to touch that cross-shaped scepter. Amen and amen to that, right? We are guaranteed safety because God has extended the cross to us. We have to respond in faith and touch the cross, keeping our eyes focused upon Christ. And then back to Esther. Esther has now, from the end of chapter 4 to now, she has transformed into, from Esther into Queen Esther. Back at the end of chapter 4, we made the observation that Esther has finally decided that she will identify as one of the members of God's people. And in this chapter, even though she has still not revealed herself to be, to be a Jew, it doesn't look like, until she hasn't revealed this to Xerxes, to Haman, or other members of the royal court, in her own internal calculus, she is taking up the identity as queen of the Jews. All but one of those, I'm sorry, Esther is referred to by name 37 times in the book. In 14 of those, she is called Queen Esther, otherwise just Esther. 14, Queen Esther. And all but one of those Queen Esther references occurs after 5-1. One of them occurs back in chapter 2. But all but one of the 14 references to her as Queen Esther occurs after she has made this transformation to identify as a member of God's people. The author of the book is communicating a clear message. She assumes the dignity and the power of her royal position only after she claims her true identity as a woman of God. There seems to be a paradox here. Esther has been queen of Persia, a Gentile nation, a pagan nation, for at least five years. She has participated in all of the royal feasts. She has presumably adopted all of the royal customs and overall has been a good citizen and a royal figurehead in the empire of Persia. And she can't even talk to the king without being summoned. She was powerless. Now she is prepared to forsake all of that and to risk her life because she is a member of a more excellent nation than Persia. It's only when she shakes off the chains of the world that she actually starts to wield the power that has been bestowed upon her. This should not be lost upon us modern readers as well. We, after our eyes are open and our hearts are changed, are faced with daily decisions of whether to identify with the people of God or with the people of our pagan nation. Here's a quick litmus test for you. Are you more comfortable fellowshipping with the saints or doing anything else? Would you rather be anywhere else than worshiping God on this his day? Are you envious of the lives of those who know and care nothing for the church? Maybe your body is here on Sunday morning, but your mind is longing to be elsewhere. You see, brothers and sisters, we have a tendency to be like 
Esther before her transformation. We have a tendency to be like the church at Laodicea, lukewarm. You see, Laodicea, it was the city that was geographically situated so that they had to have most of their water imported through this series of aqueducts. They didn't have the medicinal hot springs that some of their surrounding cities had, and they also lacked the cool, refreshing water that some of the surrounding cities had. As a result, they had this water transported in that was tepid in temperature, and it frankly tasted kind of nasty. Jesus, in his condemnation of the church there in Revelation chapter 3, says the exact same thing about their souls. They're lukewarm, and he's going to spit them, literally vomit them out of his mouth. Jesus says the same thing that I'm saying to us today, the same struggle that Esther had. We are here to make a choice. If you're in the covenant, you act like you're in the covenant. Man cannot serve both God and mammon, and this house divided cannot stand. So we take up our royal identity as members of the kingdom, as true sons of God, whenever we put on our royal robes, whenever we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and we fully commit to the kingdom of God. What's the most practical way to accomplish this? The way to transform yourself into someone fully devoted into the things of God. In one sense, the main tool is already there if you're truly in the covenant. If you're in Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, your life has been changed and you'll be bearing, bearing fruit. Good works. We've heard about it a lot recently. So Deep South Founders and with Pastor Thomas's short uh, couple of sermons. Paul makes this very clear in Galatians chapter 5. Another passage. After co- correcting the Galatians and giving a, a defense of justification by faith and not works, and then describing how Christ has set us free from both the law and the bondage to sin, Paul ends his epistle with some practical advice to the Galatians and Christians everywhere. At the end of chapter 5, Paul says the same thing that we are saying today. The flesh, the things of this world, have, have no business commingling with the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control." Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you will produce fruit, simply because God through the Holy Spirit provokes his children to good works, to producing fruit. But we are stubborn people. Yep. Even those of us in the covenant often desire many other things more than we desire Christ. I know I do. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with enjoying some of the material things that God has blessed us with. We should be very thankful to God for everything that he has given us. Even things that on the surface aren't directly related to God or his people. Even things that it might seem morally neutral. It's fine to enjoy these things. The problem arises when we raise those things up and place them on the same pedestal as our love for Jesus Christ. 
envy and covetous also or lying in wait rear their ugly heads too. We want what we don't have. If we just had that job, if we just had that house, if we could just take that trip, if our children would just act that way, we'd be satisfied. Nope. These things will not satisfy because we'll only lust for more. Because in our sinful humanity, we are lustful people, not content with the things that God has given us, but continually making idols. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with pressing towards nicer things or having a, a nice vacation. We'd, in fact, all still be sustenance farmers if Christians never made any sort of material advances in society. So that's not what I'm saying. The problem arises when we think that those things truly satisfy, when those things will truly satisfy our souls. They never will. They can't. They ontologically cannot. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden with everything they could ever need. The only command was to not eat of that one tree. That one tree, just like Haman, had seemingly everything he could ever need, except that one guy would not bow to him. So what did Adam and Eve lust after? That one tree. Even if they could only eat of that fruit, they'd be satisfied. That was literally a lie from Satan. It was a lie to Adam and Eve, and it's a lie to Christians everywhere today. The fruit was convenient. The things of the world are convenient. And we are to be a people of conviction, not of convenience. Thomas Chalmers, a prolific Scottish minister in the early 19th century, realized this and put into words in this wonderful little booklet, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's only 11 pages, freely available on the internet. I suggest you go read it. You can read it very quickly, and it's a wonderful little illumination as it's put of 1 John 2.15. So 1 John 2. First John 2 verses, I'm going to, Chalmers is just 2.15, but I'm going to read 15 through 17. First John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's explicit. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Chalmers argues that the most effective way to expel the things from the world from our hearts, of the world from our hearts, is to displace them with something more beautiful, something with more weight of glory than the idol itself. The only permanent and coincidentally, coincidentally, the simplest and most efficient and God-honoring that I might add, solution is to replace our deepest affections with a true love for Christ. Here's a, a quick illustration which I unashamedly have stolen from John Piper. Suppose you have a glass beaker full of air. You have access to very sophisticated lab equipment, and your task is to remove the air from the beaker. Do you suck it out? No, that's just going to be replaced by more air. If you have a powerful enough vacuum and a good enough seal, uh, you might get the air out, but if you get all of the air out, the beaker is going to resist and eventually shatter. The beaker itself desires to be filled with something. The most efficient way to remove the air from the beaker is to fill it with water. Chalmers doesn't actually give this example. Like I said, I stole this from John Piper. 
But it's the exact point that he's making. The best way to expel the things of the world, the deepest affections for the things of the world, is to replace them with something better, with Christ himself. This is the expulsive power of a new affection. To expel the power of the things of the world and to replace our affections upon Christ himself. So, brothers and sisters, in closing, let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds on this day, our Lord's Day. We have gathered together to worship God and to honor Christ our King. Let us place our affections upon him. That I close.